The Fantasy Animation Podcast takes its listeners on a journey through the colliding and sometimes competing worlds of fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. Each episode, we select an example of fantasy animation and consider the ways in which it functions to inspire and use our imaginations within the sphere of all things that are sculpted, composed, crafted and drawn. To help support the show, please subscribe via your podcast feed and give us a like and a quick review. It takes no more than a minute, but it really helps us to grow our audience. You can also find our archive of podcasts and our weekly blog at fantasy-animation.org. You'll find the latest reviews there, features, editorials, all written by academics, writers, historians and professional animators working within these overlapping media, mediums and genres. Failing all that, tell your friends, tell a friend about the show and the good work we do here. There's no substitution for good old-fashioned word of mouth, so thanks for downloading and I really hope you enjoy the show. Cinnamon, where you gonna run to? Hello again, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. I remain Alex Sargent, uh, and I'm always Chris Holiday. <laughs> uh, that you are, Chris, that you are. Um, this week we are talking about a fabulous TV series um, suggested by our very special guest who we'll introduce in just a second, um, Lovecraft Country, um, a show that certainly in the UK kind of went a little bit under the radar. I'd be interested to hear about that difference between that and the US reception when we get to it. Um, but a film that I'm, I mean, there's so many ways I could come at it as a fantasy <laughs> theorist and historian. There's, 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 you know, there's the obvious uh, relationship between race and the imaginary that I think we should talk about, but identity more broadly. Lovecraft's in the name. We've got to come to him and and the the sort of paradox of using Lovecraftian imagery. And and I'm I'm by no means a Lovecraft expert, so I'm excited to learn more about that. Um. So yeah, I'm excited, Chris. Always excited. I'm always excited, and especially especially for this episode. I think yeah, there's there's lots to say about the use of effects in the program. At first glance, well, there are instances where it's invisible, instances where it's um kind of striking, I think. Uh, lots to say about kind of digital backdrops, blue screen processing. Uh, and I think at the risk of making a kind of crass parallel, I think there is something interesting about the sort of industrial splintering of location and digital that marks this series and the issue of kind of reconstruction and restoration and the digital's role in, in restoring. Um, and obviously, you know, with a nod to the kinds of, of, of post-Civil War issues of reconstruction and restoration so yeah i think it's a fascinating program and, and really pleased that we've got a chance chance to do to do something that yeah definitely definitely bypassed me at the time and and yeah really thrilled to, to talk about it shame on us but yeah. uh we have a guest to help us through it um our guest this week is bambi hagins um an associate professor in the department of film and media studies at uc Irvine. um her work explores race class gender and sexuality across media and television history a subject that she's published on in countless journals and edited collections uh, she amongst her academic achievements uh Bambi wrote Showtime's Why We Laugh, Funny Women, uh, and was the historical consultant and on-screen talent for HBO's Whoopi Goldberg's Presents Mums Mably. 
She's also the author of a recent article that um, represents a new direction in her scholarship, Step 1, Check Yourself, which discusses how necessary it is for us to recognise our own biases in the development of deve- in the process, I should say, of developing anti-racist pedagogies. And we're going to talk more about that towards the end of the show with her. Uh, Bambi, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for asking me. This should be fun. Uh, we think it will be fun too. Uh Thank you for introducing Lovecraft Country to us. Um, we're now up to speed on it, having watched it over the last few weeks. For listeners who might not be up to speed on it, is there any chance you could give us a brief intro as to what this uh, little, little, uh, this weird little creature is, uh, and perhaps your relation to it, and why you wanted to talk to us about it? Um, no, but I'll try. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, the end. <laughs> it, it, I, I got scared then. I got scared, Alex. I got scared. Sorry, Bambi. Continue. <laughs> no. um, Lovecraft Country was based. It was based on a novel by Matt Ruff, which is basically conflating um, Lovecraftian horror and nineteen um, fifties America. And in the during the era of Jim Crow, we have this this family that has connections to um, to this sort of uh, supernatural lineage and um, this black family uh, and a- as a result uh, of sort of all of the trauma that's taken place within this family which um, are, were very fairly common um, during the era of the Green Book um, uh, which has nothing to do with that horrible movie, um, <laughs> but it, it and so we see the relationship between George uh, and the central characters. This is a black-centered story. I, it, you know, the major characters are black. It is, and that's the thing. It, that's the thing that I think is really interesting about it. Because um, because even with all of these incredible ma- magician magic and demons and monsters, the the most dangerous monster is racist white people. Yeah. Oh my God! I it's really hard to try to. Um, <laughs> try to explain this in a way that makes sense. Uh, nevertheless, well, think, uh, go on. Well, I think one of the one of the reasons I find it struggle to articulate what 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 this was was it seems to exist on the border of a lot of things and sort of it 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 it, it courts a certain liminality to it that that is both its strength and kind of its its mystery. So as you say, that that serial narrative that you've wonderfully kind of condensed for us there. There's also this kind of episodic structure of the TV show, which is quite Monster of the Week-esque, which is that, you know, within this kind of story, there's different supernatural occurrences, all of which, as you say, can be seen to allegorize certain aspects of um, of the protagonist's experience in segregated, racist, uh, you know, white-dominated America. Um so there's that aspect. It's it's liminal in the sense that it's it's kind of riffing on this, you know, Lovecraftian iconography. But we'll get on to sort of you know 
how it uses that and how it reuses it. So it's 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 just wonderfully between different worlds, both metaphorically and, and, and literally. And and I don't know, does that feed into any of the stuff that you appreciate about the show? I it's horror, <laughs> it's historical drama, it is darkly comedic <laughs> at times. Mm-hmm. Um it's fantasy with the whole magic uh, mm-hmm. arena. Uh, it, it's all of these things. And uh, and each, I'd say in terms of genre, each episode sort of um, foregrounds one, but the others are always there. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, I, I mean, and just, the different layers, not only visually, not only narratively, but in in auditory terms. Um, the second episode, uh, which ha- happens at the Artem Lodge when they're being held there, um, uh, George and uh, Letty uh, and uh, Tick. It the title of the episode is Whitey's on the Moon. And Whitey's on the Moon, the Gelsat Karen uh, poem, song, uh, it becomes this really integral part of, um, of the narrative because of what this group, this exclusive group of uh, rich white men are trying to achieve with magic and the, a return to Eden. Um, which I, I rewatched that uh, episode uh, right around the time that Jeff Bezos was going to space. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it just seemed a perfect time to rewatch that yeah. in, in terms of the sort of disregard for the world in which most people were living in one person, one group, um desire to fulfill some fantasy which uh, obviously excludes the people who were really suffering during that period of time so, so i have a question based on what you said in relation to all those kind of generic elements in play and i really like the idea that there that there's a lot in terms of of ways to approach uh this this program through lots and lots of different generic frames and and of course we could we could talk about the the use of digital effects and there are some fascinating sort of behind the scenes videos that show the building of all of this incredible world but i wanted to actually go back based on that issue of kind of hybridity i i suppose in some broad sense given that it plays with as you say fantasy science fiction horror um and that, that kind of historical reality and I wanted to go back to one of the first, in fact, the first thing you said about the kind of confluence of lots and lots of different different things. And then ultimately the way in which each episode, which seems to evoke the pattern of the, the novel insofar as there are these different segments, it would seem. So my question actually is about Afrofuturism um, and whether or not we could consider this an example of something like an Afrofuturist text, R- really, because... I, I don't know what I was expecting about the program, but the very first sequence of the first episode, I think, is is embedded within a sort of science fiction imaginary, and then you kind of come out of it and realise you're in a real historical reality, and there's that nice little layering of fiction. I I feel like there's also a play um, 
for the in terms of the position of black nerds um <laughs> because often you find yourself which i i <laughs> proudly claim make claim to um it you f- often find yourself in these situations where you're not included and so your identifications come in different ways with uh, the central characters. Mm. The conversation he has with another woman who was sitting on the back of the bus with him, the two black passengers, um, as they're walking because the bus breaks down. And of course, they're not given transportation to the next town. And he's, she's telling, he's telling her about the John Carter story. And she says, wait, what? <laughs> he's a confederate? And the reaction is, you know, mm-hmm. well, it, it's really not about that. It's about the story. And and, and I, I, I do definitely feel like there are times that there are stories that you become tied to that are not written for you. So... What I suppose, so I, I guess it goes back to this question of Afrofuturism. Is this an example? Is this program an example of sort of trying to, in, in the spirit of Afrofuturism and, and how Afrofuturism leans on science fiction as part of that restorative um, work? Is this is this program amongst its many the many hats that it wears? Is it trying to sort of go back to a period of, of that kind of heightened segregation and, and not not re- reclaim it, but but do something with that? Because you mentioned that confluence right at the start. So it's, it's, is, it, is it Afrofuturist in the way it's, it's, it's hybridity as part of its kind of project? Because I was sort of uncertain about the Afrofuturist element to it, given that it leans more towards horror. So I just wondered whether or not we could think of it in those terms. If you think about the episode I Am... Mm. that that focuses on Hippolyta that that there's no way you can't see that as after futurism but I I think that I think that there are moments in it that definitely do um do move towards um after after futurism I think it's most direct in the I am episode Mm. um and and I think and and I think even within that episode, there are winks to the audience about um, well the oh this is going to take to me it signaled this episode is going to take me into this very expansive and inclusive space. So uh, I, I think and and I think that. The idea of how that play with science fiction happens. I mean, this is not Octavia Butler or or N.K. Jemison, but there are touches of it. Mm-hmm. There are definitely touches of it, and and, and I think that it's. Um, I, I think that you can see this uh, see this influence. So I think that that there are definitely ways that they interconnect, mm-hmm. um, and I, I and and it was actually getting into N.K. Jemison in the past few years that I have gone back to read more more um, Octavia Butler and to become 
more well-versed in, in Afrofuturism, but it still is a, it yeah. still is a project for me. Yeah. Well, I, well, I suppose, I, I, you know, we, we've talked previously when we did an episode on Black Panther and we talked about Afrofuturism and, and there's, there's obviously lots to say and, and perhaps it's, almost the outcome of Trump as an inevitable lens across which to, to seem to read pretty much everything over the last sort of four or five years. But it just seemed that there was something interesting in relation mm. to Afrofuturism and, and cruelty. And I think it's in, yeah, I think it's in episode two, as you mentioned, when they sort of, I've put, I put episode two, it feels like get out. It's the most get outy. It's perhaps, it, re, it, it shifts the balance a little bit and, and kind of plays with a party of white men uh, in black tuxedos, and I was just uh, there's lots to say. I think about its relationship to to a, tr a Trump. It's a, a, a kind of a Trump here, a text. Um, but I guess fan Alex, I'm trying to think of yeah, where you're with the fantasy hat on. Obviously, it's a bit science fiction. It's it's a bit lots of things. Um, but where does fantasy then fit into this uh, the dark fantasy? I guess of, of this program. Well, well, actually, I was, I was reminded when Bambi was speaking about the the quote in the first episode, which seems to set up the sort of rules of the game here a little bit, which is the, exactly that moment where he said, "You can't read that." You know, I can't remember exactly the quote, but it's yeah, why are you reading that story about you know a Confederate um, soldier? And he says something like, uh, "Stories are like people; you don't have to um, like all aspects of them to love them," or something like that. And it seems to me that one of the things this show is playing with, or at least what struck me, was this idea of like, of of the sort of political power of of the imagination, and and uh, when one is placed in a you know a marginalised position in a society, and you don't get to do much imagining. Um, and we've talked on the podcast before about how we can read that sort of at a cultural level, but also just, you know, on the history of fantasy fiction, you know, particularly, you know, US and, and Anglophone fantasy fiction is, is you know, is dominated by 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 white stories of, of white of the white imaginary. Um, and it's and it's using a very interesting, you know, it, it, it's 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 trying to sort of offer some kind of black imaginary that's how i read it and there's some stories that articulate fears and anxieties like this kind of you know uh first episode that's very kind of lovecraftian and um very horrific and and um and and used to articulate um you know an experience of racial violence and then there's the episode that we were just talking about with hippolyta um i am which is you know a story of of a of a woman who who sort of longs to longs to do more with their life and then is given the the power to do everything they could possibly want in their life and become a sort of traveler and so in many ways the horror and science fiction liminality is to me one is a, is an expression of of fear and one is an expression of of hope but they're both given an opportunity to kind of be visualized in various episodes through this kind of pursuit of of a of a of a of an imaginary that belongs to black subjectivity rather than white subjectivity i don't know um bambi if you had any more to say about that because i just I'm, it's interesting that they use lovecraft as a as a figure to kind of negotiate all this with because obviously there's a really thorny um there's a really thorny problem with that but uh maybe you could say more but i uh, well just backtrack just a touch mm -hmm. i think the fantasy comes through so much in the first two episodes mm. because you have the um sons of adam yeah you have this this cult that's built on magic um and that is and and this weird 
connection to Judeo-Christian and magic at the same time, which I think is also an interesting parallel with the ways that Christianity is used to, uh, historically has been used to justify some truly heinous things. Um, So I I think that the the fantasy elements are always present, but but I think there's always this, the light and the darkness in relationship to magic are always there. The, and, and you could say that goes along with, you know, sort of the, um, sort of the history of how magic is portrayed, that, that it always comes with a, with a price, that whatever you do, the, there's always something, that something, some price has to be paid. Um, and I think that um, I just think that that adds to the the richness of the spectatorial experience um, because it because then it gets dark really quick, you know, really quick. Um, and it and also the play there way these white men are looking through these windows into their their specific rooms and playing with their heads. Christina Braithwaite, who um, it, it actually uh, the, one of the people I'm interviewing about it on his recap referred to Christina Braithwaite as the ultimate 53% white woman, 53% referring to uh, the 53% of white women who voted for Trump. Uh, which became 55% yeah. in 2020, by the way. Um, and, and so Christina has this articulation of these feminist ideas. Why am I limited? Why am, you know, why is my, why does my gender make so much of a difference? And, oh yeah, you're disposable, but why am, so there, there is this, I just that, that choice again, to make mm. transform Caleb into Christina, what what had a really interesting subtext to it. And yeah. rather than being intertextual, it was extratextual. It was referring to things that happen outside of specific narratives, but in our knowledge within uh, popular culture. Uh, so I don't think the present is ever past mm-hmm. in, in this show. I, I think it, it's always there. So I, I had a, a question based on the relationship between the first two episodes and then episode three, because I had a note under episode three. I put, it seems to have forgotten the magic and wizards of the previous episode. And, and, and I suppose that speaks to exactly the sort of tonal shifts or the, the, the remixing of, of genres. But actually, my, I suppose there's a point around imaginaries. And, I, and, and Alex mentioned the word imaginaries towards the start and, and the sort of the role of the, the monsters in all this, because we haven't even really talked about these these sort of, yeah, these monstrous figures, which I have, uh, you know, l- a bit to say in relation to, to animation, but before I do, I was sort of trying to, and it maybe goes back to Alex's point about the use of, of Lovecraftian imagery and and, and 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 monsters and so forth in, in combination. That kind of the kind of creatures and the mythos around um, around that the the interplay between historical 
authenticity in some loose sense of the word and then it's kind of sci-fi territory and thinking about the role of villainy and the imagined villain and 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 wondering what's more or less imaginary the alien monsters or the the hist- the lens through which we look at this historical period and it's and it's almost like the aliens or the monsters don't seem to I'm saying aliens by I mean monsters the monsters don't really disrupt the authenticity of the program even though they are quite obviously a signal of some kind of exuberant hybridity actually they are no less or no more imagined than white supremacy although of course with real world consequences but there's something around the the collective using history to talk about the past and the sort of imaginary around 1950s america versus an imaginary of science fiction and i was just trying to that's you know not not to not to do um, to make these things illusory, but there's something around the, how the fil- how the program uses that historical period to sort of talk about an imaginary of the past and then connect that up with the with with sort of these these monsters. But I I, I kind of felt they suit they seem to work well together. The idea of villainy and mon- and you alluded to it at the start. You know who is the real monster? So I just wondered, yeah, ha- how you see essentially what is quite a dramatic intrusion of science fiction into this world, but actually seems almost harmonious in the way that it's treated. Well, I think part of it is, is has to do with how, uh, how one defines Lovecraftian lore. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, when you think of the Cthulhu mythology and when you think of the shoguths and um is that sci-fi is it horror yeah or i i mean it at at the time that many of these were being written they were referred to as weird tales Mm. (laughs) which defies um actually defies a strict uh, generic uh, classification. Uh, but I, I, I think that I think that the, sh- the Shoguth's magic, other forms of power um, are are so central to this story because those who control the magic, who control the shoguths control the power. Mm. And, um, and that's why it's so pivotal in, um, let me think of a better way to phrase this. In the book, it is a story about, about a mm. black family, about a black protagonist, but it's not necessarily centering on blackness by centering blackness in the form of storytelling what it seems to do is to be shifting the power and shifting the power and shifting the power uh, over the course of those 10 episodes Mm. and even and again it's it's one of those I, i just wanted to 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 read this little quote, it was from an um, an article um, in the Grio, uh, talking about just what we were saying 
uh, by Kamaria Fiola. And she says there's a running joke about how difficult it is to explain Lovecraft Country to non-watchers. Mm. It's probably more truth than joke. We stumble through genre, sci-fi, horror, history, fantasy, trying to find the perfect fit, never succeeding. When in actuality, Lovecraft Country is its own genre. It makes us smile, cry, laugh, cringe, rejoice. A range of emotions. So at the end of the day, we honestly don't care what category it falls into because we know how it makes us feel. And it, and I wrote that down specifically <coughs> and then forgot to read it um, when you asked me the question uh, <laughs> because I think that... Mm that explains it. it that it it that it is mm. and it, and in i think in a significant way it also is a certain recognition in the show be, because of the relationship between ruby and and christina braithwaite um that allies can't really be trusted and i know that may be a harsh way of of framing that, but I kind of think it is. I, I kind of think that is a statement. Um, when Ruby is given the opportunity to live like a white woman, um, it's intoxicating at mm. first. And, and, and you can only imagine what it would be like it during the Jim Crow era not to be treated as subhuman. But ultimately, that's not what she wants. And when given the opportunity to try to help her sister, um, she she makes that choice to help her. Well, that's that's. So I was going to say that's connected to I suppose Alex's point earlier about the political power of imagination and and crucially. It, within that within that discourse of decentering de and recentering who or what gets to imagine uh, and obviously in the case of ruby as you say it must be absolutely intoxicating to be able to assume to assume that kind of identity at that particular time and and it sort of makes so i guess that's what that's equally as imaginary as these Cthulhu there, there's something really interesting about the power of imagination the role of of, of storytelling and of course this goes whether it's the green book or the fact that the program itself gets to shift its its narrative voice and the power of telling stories um I think there's lots to say about as you said that kind of centering of blackness but doing so in that in certainly in episode five I think it is where where Ruby gets to assume that the, the role of, of um, you know, essentially a white body. There's there's lots there's lots of quite you know. Of course, it's it's obvious in that in in that sense. But something quite yeah, well, very provocative about what the program equally, of course, has to then say about about whiteness. Um, yeah, so I think it's it's given the the construction of of Ruby from the start as this kind of quite disassociated character, and then. That that's a really interesting. So I also like the ensemble nature of the program that really moves between these different characters as much as it moves between sort of these these generic frames and and sort of plays out its own shifts of power or the transference of power as you yeah as you described it. Ruby's characters are interesting because she's uh, she really drank the Kool Aid of the American dream. Mm. <laughs> you know she she 
wanted to, she knew she was going to be able to someday work at Marshall Fields. And the person that, that the, oh, there's never going to be more than one black person working at Marshall Fields during that period of time. And the person they hired had none of her experience, but had, was more Eurocentrically attractive and lighter skinned. Um, so, um, it, you know, that that's a devastating moment, but it's equally as devastating when she realizes how easily she got sucked into whiteness because she's the one who's giving the, the young woman, the young black woman, the hardest time when she comes in as the supervisor, mm-hmm. you know, she got completely Karen uh, at that moment. And, and as a result of it, um, it, it she, she does, she mm-hmm. takes a violent turn uh, with the, mm-hmm. with uh, the attack on 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 the manager, mm-hmm. and, and really not you know, and that's that's like the anger over centuries of yeah white sexual assault of black women and and that's central to this story because the original uh wraith white founder um was the one who raped hannah who was dora's great 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 grandmother um and it's but in again of course that that a sexual attack, the the sexual attack stuff didn't happen in the novel, but it happened in a very vivid and very visceral way in this particular episode. And by the time we get to the the Emmett Till episode, because uh, uh, Emmett Till was a friend of Dee's, South Side of Chicago during that t- time period. It, it makes sense um, it, where she, it, where she initially makes the choice to go with Christina rather than stay in, in the community. Um, and she and Christina have this really uh, intense exchange because Christina said, you know, you're not, you're not there. You chose not to be there. You're a woman who knows what she wants and wants what she wants. So Christina is immediately equating Ruby with herself, which ultimately Ruby can't do because um, Ruby cannot construct herself since simply as an individual. She is tied to a community. She is tied to a history. She is tied to a legacy. Mm. And um, and and she's and I believe the line is when she talks to Christina is saying, you know, I realized I don't want to be white. I just don't want to have to worry all the time. Mm. And and very different from the novel because in the novel, not only does Ruby survive, she chooses to live out her life as a white woman. And 
that was that was the moment that I said, Misha Green cannot let that happen. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. I'll just be honest. I said, you cannot put that on screen. And she said, of course, I'm not going to put that on screen um, because that just fits into a whole nother racial fantasy, which is, well, black people really just want to be white. Yeah. Um, for the problems with colorism, because I don't think there's necessarily enough recognition of the fact that Letty does have privilege mm-hmm. because of, of color and because she is a more Eurocentrically beautiful woman. Um, and that also is a part of her audacity because she is willing to speak up. She is willing to, um, she is willing to make a stand that initially I don't think Ruby or even Hippolyta would have because that is privilege. Um, and, and it becomes responsibility later but initially it is privilege. Um, I was just going to, I was going to say we're, we're, we're um, already, we're, we seem to be fast approaching the hour and, and I've got lots to, I mean, I've got lots to say about the, the, the animation side, but I just wonder if there's more, Alex, is there more, there more fantasy to this? I mean, I, I, as I said, I've been watching elements of the production and, um, you know, Framestore and Rodeo are but two of the visual effects companies that that worked on on the program. And yeah, I mean, if you're interested, if people have watched the program and are interested, where because I think uh, beyond the Cthulhu, the visual effects aren't exactly super super prominent, but some really interesting stuff around the way that neighbourhoods are constructed, um, the way the indoor masquerades is outdoor, the collapse of of um, buildings. Well, I'll do a spoiler-free note on the collapse of buildings, um, as well as some yeah incredible effects work in relation to sort of these snow-covered landscapes, crowd replication scenes. Um, so I think there's lots there's lots to say about the the the, the role of the the digital. But um, Alex, do you have any any bits and bobs, any anything you noted down that we haven't yet talked about in relation to to, to fantasy or anything that that um, we talked about already? The only thing I feel we we, we we probably should touch on is, of course, H.P. Lovecraft um, himself, yeah. the eponymous kind of spectre that, that hangs over some of this, because we've sort of alluded to, you know, some of the, the sort of uh, Cthulhu mythology and, and the, the sort of the weird in, in, <laughs> in, in, in the, the sort of true sense of the word aspects of the show. But I, one of the things we were, we were talking a few minute, uh, minutes ago about sort of the way the show slowly tries to move or redirect elements of power um, and linking to this idea of the imaginary, the only the only thing that is probably worth flagging is that I, just you know, I guess as the fantasy geek, one of the things that that seems quite powerful about the show's register is the way it has that intertextual relationship with with the Lovecraft itself, because you know it it does a good job in the first episode of flagging up the problem of of Lovecraft, which is of course. Lovecraft is a white supremacist. He's, uh, you know, a, a bigoted. You know, he he created a lot of fabulous monsters, but he himself was a monster uh, in his, you know, social attitudes. And not only that, a lot of his othered view of the world was fueled by that racism. So I think one of the things that is also just worth flagging up is what the show's doing, or at least to me it seems, is 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 taking exactly back to that line about there. You don't have to love every aspect of a story to use it. Um, you can take some vivid, wonderful creatures that a racist 
white man invented and you can strip them from him uh, slowly through this kind of systematic deconstruction of 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 the power source and you can give those creatures to a to articulate something very different and that sense of the othered becomes not it's, it's not the it's not the black experience that's othered it's 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 the world that's othered it's the it's the racism itself that's othered it's the segregated hostile violent society they're living in that's othered and rather than that being an expression of white fear of blackness it becomes a fear of black uh, it becomes almost the other way around a black a black fear of whiteness because whiteness is the true villain in this in this story so i i i just i thought one of the many layers was this kind of assault you know a love a, an assault with with an element of of admiration but an assault on lovecraftian imagery and reused and repurposed and repoliticized um and again, it links back to that idea of who gets to do the imaginary. And there seems to be something very political about the show's attempt to go, well, well, well basically, screw you, Lovecraft. You, you, you came up with some good monsters, but we're having them, thanks. Uh, and we're going to use mm-hmm. them all the, all the better. Uh, and and there's, something, there's, something, there's something quite political about that. One, because, you know, Lovecraft's such an important figure in the history of fantasy fiction. But also, he is a figure that sort of sparks the the delight of a certain young white male demographic of of fantasy fans and and people are obsessed with this you know the cthulhu kind of depths of and and learning more about his sort of mythology and all this kind of stuff and and to me the show's a little bit of an fu to all that which i which i rather rather enjoyed um i I, I agree but i think there's early on i i believe it's in the first episode that tick talks about reading hp lovecraft and the fact that Montrose made him memorize his poem mm-hmm. on the creation of niggers. Yeah. Um, so from that moment on, even people who don't know Lovecraft now know Lovecraft. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because I, I, I mean, I, I think I, many people were aware of Lovecraft, at least peripherally. Um, but if they they've only engaged um, the mythologies without context, mm. Um, mm. don't necessarily know how incredibly racist he was, um, and unapologetically racist. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And and you know you just said that you just said that um, it you know it. it Often it's framed as the white fear of blackness. Um, the black fear of whiteness has always been there. Because it has to be. Of course. That's survival. Um, and that's why, it, it, I mean, it was a wonderful thing last summer when with the George Floyd the pro- justice for George Floyd protests all over the world. And, and, you know, great that one of the cops who who's murdered a black man actually went to jail. Um, but the talk of a racial reckoning always has me feel in some kind of way mm. because it wasn't a reckoning for me. I knew that was happening. Mm. I've, you know, I got the talk when I was a kid. 
like everybody else. And I'm, and I'm old. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'll be six, uh, I'll be 60 this year. So this is not, we think about that talk coming in the last 10 years, last 15 years. This is last 40 years, you know, 40 years ago. You had to be aware of the position you're put in, you know, the phrase, the phrase born suspect comes up a lot of the time. Yeah. And, and so to me, I I think even though there was a shift of power um, that was taking place, there's also a shift in subjectivity. And the mm-hmm. understanding, anybody watching mm-hmm. this show was getting pulled into Tick and Letty and Ruby and Montrose and Hippolyta and D's subjectivity. Yeah, yeah. So there was an understanding through this, as is often the case, through a text that's not directly talking about something, but rather using you know, using science fiction, using fantasy um, and using history as as something as a way for them to understand on a more empathetic level mm. what that fear actually means. And I just I, I've got to mention um, Tulsa, <laughs> the Tulsa Rage yep. Riot. That's episode seven. Episode seven. Uh, no, it's the. Second to the last episode, I right, right, which was episode nine. Oh, yep, 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 yeah. Rewind 1921, um, where uh, they have to go back to get the book of names in order to save D. Um, and that involves Montrose, who had been there to go back Mm -hmm. and. And you have the whole go, coming full circle again from that very first scene to because Montrose and George always told the story about how they were saved by uh, this stranger who comes with a baseball bat and beats the racist off of them. Mm-hmm. And then they realize that the stranger with the baseball t- bat is actually Tick. Yeah. And so... But the part they had never been told is, and Tick didn't know, nobody knew about the pain that Montrose had gone through because he had rejected the person he loved just prior to him being murdered by a mom. Yeah, yeah. On this, um, well, sorry, I was just saying, on this issue, I mean, we can't, maybe this feeds into maybe this feeds into this but i wondered whether this your points about how to use history the sort of going back desubjectivity shifts of power um mm. survival and just the urgency the urgency yeah of and, ang- as and well, anger you know, as well but, yeah. i think there's something there's something very angry about the the program in lots and lots of different ways in a good way and, and i like the sorts of eruptions of of these these cthulhu's in a way that that speaks to kind of anger but i just wondered we can't we can't let you go without you talking about the anti-racist pedagogy and I wonder whether some of what you're saying or does some of what you're saying in relation to what the program's doing um, 
fit into your broader, I guess, broader research in relation to, to pedagogy and, and especially this side of how to use history and, and what kinds of, of, of voices within within history are, are privileged. So I just wondered if there's a, yeah, as I said, we can't let you go without without talking about that. And, and it seemed like some of the stuff you were saying around what the program is doing seemed to, to map quite nicely onto this idea of kind of knowledge production and, and um, what it means to, to go back and, and, and reckon with some of these with some of the pre-existing knowledge bases, essentially? Well, part of the thing with uh, talking about Tulsa in particular yeah. is so many people did not know that that had happened. Yeah. Because it was erased. Mm. In, in 2021, Joe Biden went to Tulsa and was the first president in 100 years. Wow to recognize that that had actually happened. Mm. Now, is it, is it just, a, is that just a symbolic thing on some level? Yes, but it matters. Yeah. yeah. The recognition matters. And, and also in connection with anti-racist pedagogies, I'm, I'm teaching a class right now on writing um, for film and television. And one of the things and it, it's actually called Hot Takes, Reviews, and Academic Writing. Um, because I think there's a lot that we can learn from hot takes in terms of engaging audiences with, with language, being evocative. And uh, the assignment they're doing this week, actually, they watched the first episode of Watchmen, which has the long scene focused on um, the opening scene that focuses on um, on Tulsa right. and uh, and Misha Green actually when she talked to HBO because of course Tulsa was not in Ruff's novel um, but when she talked to the executives at HBO she said we're going to we're going to go back to Tulsa. And she, they said, oh, they already did that in Watchmen. And she said, yeah, and we'll do it again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we need to tell it twice. No. We need to tell these stories twice or maybe three times. Or maybe, yes, or maybe that's really interesting. 50 times. Yeah, maybe you 50 know? times. Um, because that's how ignorant people are of it. But yeah. one of the things is they do it. it I mean, both scenes are striking uh, and powerful, the way it's shot. But... What happens in Watchmen is really focusing on the terror and the horror of the attack. Mm. What we see in Lovecraft Country is what was lost. Yeah. What Black Wall Street looked like. And it and again, I hate award ceremonies because they're almost always wrong. Um, but the scene with Michael K. Williams describing what's going on as they're waiting for Letty to come back with the book yeah. is heartbreaking. It, it, it's just, and it's not histrionics, which Montrose does go into sometimes. It is really just He's it, you're seeing someone who's broken describing mm. 
what if it hasn't already happened will happen mm-hmm. i suppose it's tricky it's trick no i was gonna say it's tricky this idea of what was lost i think that's really 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 powerful and speaks to the sort of yeah the the idea of re- restor- restorative work that that are a label of restoration that we can give to a lot of a lot of texts when it comes to um, us as also scholars trying to lean into f- fragments and names that names that were lost and bits of information that are missing and trying as part of our our thinking through knowledge about epistemological frames but equally what it what it, why it matters and the stakes of embracing fractures or, or spaces in, in in knowledge and so I suppose yeah that that the anti-racist pedagogy element is part of that part of that work that really important work to to figure out what was lost and and think about processes of recovery well and also to at least for me i'm they they watch that episode of watchmen they're going to watch um the rewind 1921 yeah a little bit later because just different approach different approaches to writing in watchmen they were reading all of these different articles about it uh, some were hot takes, some were reviews, some were features, and talking about how would you classify the, these types of writing? Mm. You know, what was it doing with it? You know, one article uh, by Damon Young, who who uh, does Very Smart Brothers for the Root, is called Maybe We Need to Burn Down All the Plantations. And so he's using that as a platform to talk about the discussion of Watchmen uh, uh, as a platform to talk about all of these ways that romanticizing uh, the South, the plantation weddings, how all of those things really are, you know, nobody's having uh, picnics at Auschwitz. Mm. Mm. Uh, and and it, it, it's uh, uh, you know it, it's it, and it's not like either or it's just a, another way of thinking about why would one time telling that story be enough? Yeah. yeah. A, a, and talking to them about you know when we're choosing to tell stories when we're choosing to use guides as going into the stories that we want to tell how are the way we tell history mm-hmm. the way we know history is based upon what we've been taught yeah. and i didn't learn about tulsa until i was in college mm-hmm. and 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 i i, I think and, and again, like something central to me about anti-racist pedagogies is that we have to be willing to ask ourselves hard and not pleasant questions. Yeah. 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 What are the biases that I bring to it? How is what I choose to show, what I choose for them to read, how I choose to frame classics or the canon? Yeah. Is really influenced by basically colonial white supremacist viewpoints that are are baked in to our institutions, but they're also baked into us. Yeah. 
because we were taught within those institutions. Hmm. Again, you know, why, why do we have to watch Birth of a Nation again? Could we watch within our gates just once? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, the other Strawberry Show film. Uh, and, but it, it often is that it doesn't occur to us. Yeah, and it yeah. needs to occur to us, and and that's. I feel like that's our job. Well, yeah, I was, I, I, yeah, I think you're right. This kind of breaking through of racial imaginaries is challenging, as you say, challenging to do, um, and our and our job to sort of think critically and push careful and considered thought into these areas that are difficult. Exactly that you, exactly that you say. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I think it's 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 great, and it's something that you know is obviously we, we talk about a lot certainly in, in UK higher education at the, at the moment and and thinking through these processes of decolonization so yeah I think yeah really it's kind of really great to have a, a, a kind of perspective on that yes Alex sorry it, well is this is, I was just going to ask is this what is this the the examples you're giving are there any is there anything people could access or is there any open source stuff that not you would... yet mm-hmm. <laughs> not because I'm trying I'm yeah. this is the first time yeah. I've tried it because I, yeah. they'll have watched one text and looked at it in relationship to uh, these different ways it was interpreted. But then they'll do the comparative work with Lovecraft Country in yeah. terms of yeah. uh, going back to that idea of why these stories need to be told more than once. Mm-hmm. And, and but in, and none of us does it perfectly right. You know, I have used the wrong pronouns. I yeah. have um, been wrong about name, naming the Latino Latina versus Latinx. Um, you know, I have not trigger warned something uh, quickly enough. It, so I'm not making any claim to perfection. No, but it's messy I, work. It's messy. It's messy yeah. work, and I mean that in a in a positive way. I think it's yeah, it's messy work, and and part of the challenge is certainly to to speak to students and get them to embrace the messiness of a seminar where we come to, come to terms, often quite literally, with with some with some things that, as you say, that that may in some cases be, have been lost because, as as you say, you know, recognition, um, yeah, recognition matters. Anyway, I think we yeah, I mean, I, we could keep mm. talking and wonderfully so. And I'm I'm sort of I can't. Uh, you know, I say this very rarely, but I can't write notes quick enough. So thank you so much, Bambi, for 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 all, for all of this. Can I just mention one last thing? Yes, of course you can. Yeah, oh, of course um, you can. Oh, of course you and, can. And it's about um, it's about that sort of uh, generational and generational ways in which these transformations take place. Because I wanted to go to the very end um, when D who now has her um, metal arm because (laughs) Hippolyta built it for her, uh, comes upon Christina, who has has had magic. She is banned from magic. But it's not just Christina. The sacrifice that Tick made and the sacrifice that Ruby made banned it from all white people. Mm. And Mm. I think, again... That's about uh, the complete transference of power. And that's what makes this fantasy. Um, 
Mm-hmm. And, and but her line is, and the show uh, Tick Shogoth is now, um, is now D Shogoth. When she says Christina's begging her to help her, um, and and her D's line is, they'll never learn. Mm-hmm. And at first, many people thought she was talking about Christina thinking that, oh, I'm going to help you now. I don't think she's talking to Christina. She's talking about the rest of the folks in their coalition who left her alive. Mm -hmm. And then she kills her. (laughs) And, 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 and I think that that, that also, as I mentioned before, I, 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 I think that it, it's a certain wariness about who's actually with us. Yeah. Mm. Because yeah. Christina did save Letty. Christina did help to save, uh, did help to save D, but it was all strategic for her own benefit. And, you know, mm. that may be a really, um, less of an, an Afrofuturist view than, um, well, than a more, a more negative reading of it. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's part of it too. Yeah. Cause I think there are lots of lessons in these individual episodes from the fact that Hippolyta was already incredible, but because of the time in which she was born, the world and her husband mm. limited her. Mm. Letty was the one who was going to have to carry the responsibility and carry the power uh, of the responsibility of the book. As in many political movements we've seen in the United States, that's a responsibility of black women, although they don't get the credit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, I really feel like... Uh, for some reason, when I, I started watching this, it, it made me think of the Twilight Zone mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because Rod Serling tried to write contemporary stories that were dealing with issues of race and class and to a lesser extent gender, and he couldn't get them on TV. The Twilight Zone came out of his frustration because this way, if I make it sci-fi, and make it metaphorical. Uh, I can get it onto television. Yeah, seems like fantasy as well. This is the kind of conversation that we've had on previous episodes with regards to the, the that kind of reading of yeah, reading of fantasy and uh, the way that fantasy. I know Alex would say fantasy matters. Fantasy exists. Um, yeah, wonderful. Um, I guess yeah, I guess we should wrap up, Alex. I, I'm sort of yeah, loath to bring things to to a close, but. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Bambi, for for kind of wonderfully taking us through the the twists, the nine tales, if you will, of the program and the the twist, the twists and turns of everything. And and definitely, I would encourage people to 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 watch it because it 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 does. There's a way of, there's a way of thinking about its you know narrative and synopses, but clearly there are these really big questions 
that we can that kind of frame the, the the program itself. So thank you, thank you so much, Bambi, for for sharing all of your thoughts on the program. I'm also going to hand over to Alex next because I can never do the rounding up because he's got this down to a T. So um, yeah, I'll pa- I'll pass over to, to Alex. You can do the the obligatory um, roundups. Well, okay, thank you, Chris. I, it is my honour as always, uh, Bambi. Thank you so yeah. thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, it's been lovely. It's been lovely. I, I I'm sorry there are like so many other things that I, I wanted to talk about. But, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, such is the, such is the life of a podcaster. Yeah. It's um, you know, I have to I have to I have to do a sequel sometime. Um, do you, do you do social media at all? Would listeners benefit from following you on Twitter or anything, or uh, is that not quite your thing? No. Cool. No <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I I do have a Twitter account, and every once in a while, I'll say something. Okay. Um, but uh, that's what most people are going for. Yeah, yeah. It's at, mysterious. At, and that and the at that's underscore dr bambi perfect okay great and we are at fan and in research f-a-n-a-n-i-m research you also can find us uh on instagram and uh facebook uh of course visit the website fancy-animation.org um access the blog uh, and archive of podcasts we've got lots of other episodes uh, touching on many of the issues we've touched on this show um none quite so expertly but we, we do our best um And that's been us for another week, and we'll see you next time. Bye.